Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm joined by Professor and Consultant in Neurology at Lund University, Tobias Kromberg, who has a special interest in cardiac-induced brain injuries. Welcome to the show, Tobias, and it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Paul. Very nice to be here. And uh, just to say that you're in Sweden at the moment, aren't you? How's life there? Well, the sun is uh, blue and the sky is up, but uh, of course we are suffering from the the pandemic as as everybody else. So it's an extraordinary situation. It hasn't uh, hit uh, the southern part of Sweden uh, very much yet. So we are still very rather much business as usual. Yes, yeah, so you were just saying before we started recording, your life seems well, not quite normal, but it's not as uh, drastically hit as it is in the UK. That's right. And I just wonder if you could briefly introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your interest in neurology and in particular, cardiac arrest induced brain injury. How how did you come into that? Well, I try to make a long story short. It started actually during my my early years in Lund from uh, the middle of the 1990s when I was working in a laboratory doing my PhD in experimental brain research. And we worked a lot with stroke models and with uh, models of cardiac arrest uh, and uh, basic mechanisms of of cell injury after cardiac arrest and stroke, which is uh, two rather similar uh, diseases in the sense that the the blood gets a loss of of blood flow for a, a period, and then we have a reperfusion of the brain, and then we have a damage. And the mechanisms are are quite similar, actually. Uh, so it started then, and uh, when I, I had done my dissertation, I um, was working at full-time clinics, and I got interested in the cardiac arrest population. I started a collaboration with Hans Freiberg, who, who was intensive care physician at that time and who is a professor there uh, now. And we started uh, with hypothermia treatment uh, early in 2003, uh, when when the two important studies were published showing that uh, cooling patients after cardiac arrest had a protective effect. And and we were strong believers of hypothermia, and we wanted to to study outcome in those patients, long-term outcome, and also to look at different methods to try to diagnose brain injury and to try to to decide the prognosis for the patients in the ICU when the patients were still unconscious. And we started working with uh, different methods, uh, mainly biomarkers in the blood, a clinical neurological examination, and electrophysiology, where we could work with continuous EEG, for example, as a method to, to look at the brain activity after cardiac arrest. And we started uh, publishing our results about this, and gradually, we got more and more international collaboration. Niklas Nilsson, who is intensive care physician in Helsingborg, became part of the team. And he was very important for us uh, building up a big network of international sites in the hypothermia register, uh, which was the, the foundation for the first TTM trial uh, after that, which we did in 2010 until 2013. 
studying the effects of temperature management in patients. When was it sort of first realised that hypothermia could be sort of therapeutic and be a, a useful tool in the medical toolkit, as it were? I mean, I guess people have known for quite a long time. I mean, when I used to play sports as a youngster and if I, I got a strain on my leg, you'd get an ice pack put on your, on your knee or the muscle or whatever, and that would help alleviate any inflammation there and you'd get back to playing the sport quicker. But when was it sort of the the light bulb moment, if you like, that, hey, we can use this in a bigger way for something like the brain? Well, that has been known for the, for the brain. It has been known for many years that it's possible to, to cool a patient, for example, to be able to do thoracic surgery in the main aortic uh, vessel, uh, to be able to, to stop the blood flow to the brain. You have to cool the patient very much all the way down to to 19 degrees at that level it's it's almost like putting the brain into to the refrigerator and all biological processes slow down very much very similar to what happens in your knee actually you slow down all the biological processes all the damaging degrading processes are are being slowed down and uh, for a patient operated and and uh, thoracic surgery you could you could keep operating for approximately 1 hour at the temperature of 19 degrees and, uh, and during that period you have basically no activity in the brain if you if you look at the cortical activity with an eeg it's completely silent and then you could rewarm the patient and they will be functioning more or less normally after that. Maybe some, some uh, minor problems, but most patients could return to normal life. And comparing that with a cardiac arrest, it would be completely impossible to have a human who, who is without any circulation and normal body temperature for one hour. After that time, you're certainly dead. There's no chance to revive that person. Uh, if the body temperature is normal. So it has been very obvious and it has been known for a long, long time. But uh, there were uh, early research on this. Uh, I'm not sure about exact years, uh, but there were pioneering research done in, in the US, in Pittsburgh, at the Safar Institute. And then it was more or less abandoned until the 1970s. When this, uh, when there was a major new focus on hypothermia in experimental settings, and a lot of experimental done uh, in in animals with mild hypothermia, not down to 19 degrees, but uh, only to 33, to 32, 33, or maybe 34 degrees. And it was shown that this was effective in different models, experimental models of cardiac arrest and stroke for that. So when I got to the lab laboratory and started my research in 1995, it was very well known. And in that laboratory here in Lund, a lot of the pioneering work uh, had also been done on hypothermia in, in experimental animals. And for me, it was very clear. Also, I, I worked with the whole animal models, and I also worked with cell cultures. And when we did this ischemia in the cell cultures and we just lowered the temperature, the cells didn't get damaged. So it was it was sort of a, a concept that was 
very much uh, for all the research, it's very, very clear concept that hypothermia works. And then we had these two trials in 2013 showing in a clinical setting that it worked also in patients. And that led to a major implementation over the whole world of hypothermia treatment. But unfortunately, those two trials were not very good trials. They were small trials. One Australian trial from from uh, Bernard and his uh, collaborators, which with only less than 100 patients, I think it was 77 patients, and, and then a European trial, which was stopped early because they didn't have enough funding. And they had, I think, 273 patients, which is not very much in these circumstances. So, so for us, later it became evident that we need more information in patients to know whether it is effective or not. We need to do large clinical trials to study temperature management, hypothermia treatment in patients. Could I just take you back to one of the things you were saying when you were doing your study and your PhD? You were saying you were looking at animals. Do animals, though, they have a, a lot of them have a, a natural ability to hibernate anyway, don't they? So how does that come into the picture? And do humans have anything like that? No, humans don't have that ability to hibernate. And, and the animals used in the experiments for hypothermia don't have that ability. So a rat, which is the most common laboratory experimental animal, it can't hi- hibernate. And, and pigs has also been used, but, but not very much. But animals and uh, rats and mice, they don't, they don't hibernate. And, and also, as I mentioned to you just before we came on, on the air, there was a, a famous case at the end of the 90s, which featured a, a Swedish doctor, Anna Bagenholm, who I believe experienced a, a case of hypothermia for a couple of hours i believe it was because she was skiing in norway and fell into a river do you know much about that yes i remember i i know i've seen a program on television about her this this is a very very interesting case and it's sort of a proof of principle case with anna bagenholm because uh, what happened was that she was skiing and uh, down a slope and she went out on the ice at the end of the slope and was sliding out on quite thin ice, actually, and got trapped with her head uh, into the water and was and, and drowned on the ice with her head uh, being put into the water. And then she had a cardiac arrest, if I've understood it correctly. So, so it, and it is an, not an unusual situation with cardiac arrest in the circumstance of, of drowning, of course. But what was very special with Anna Bagenholm and ideal for her was that her body and particularly her head was cooled before she had the cardiac arrest. And we also know that from experimental settings that the most protective effect of cooling is if you cool the brain of the animal or of the human in this this case before the heart stops. Because then all the damaging processes will be much slower and for her they couldn't rescue her because of the thin ice so her friends couldn't couldn't rescue her and they eventually got a helicopter and and somehow they rescued her and she was transported and put on on uh, 
artificial circulation in the helicopter and, and slowly rewarmed and, and very, very slowly her heart started beating again. Uh, and it was so remarkable because she had at least, I'm not sure how long, but at least one hour of uh, circulatory arrest. And that's very similar to these thoracic surgery patients. Uh, and and that explains why her brain didn't get uh, damaged or more damaged by the cardiac arrest. I understand that she was like over two hours in arrest and her body temperature went down to 13.7 degrees, which apparently was the lowest ever recorded. And it's pretty amazing. But the, I don't know if you saw the, the news last year, towards the end of last year, there was uh, a report of a, a British lady who had a similar case who suffered hypothermia in the mountains of Spain. And she arrested for six hours, I think it was. But they, they managed to bring her back. And they always say they made a full recovery. But of course, we we'll never really know whether she has made a full recovery. No, but it's. I think it's a very. There's a very strong and important message here, and that is, if you are cooled before you have the arrest, uh, then you have a very favorable situation, and that's also very well known to doctors that uh, you cannot uh, decide that the person is dead before the person has been rewarmed, because there's always the chance that that the cooling uh, or, or the chill has had a protective effect and that the patient will survive. There's a saying, isn't there? You're not dead until you're warm and dead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's also interesting, we, we did a meta-analysis of uh, the experimental data on hypothermia after cardiac arrest. All the animal research we put together and looked at the evidence in favor of hypothermia and it showed that the strongest uh, evidence is for pre-arrest cooling or intra-arrest cooling of small animals. And we have actually all too few data on large animals with post-cardiac arrest cooling, which is what we do with the humans when, when we are cooling after arrival to hospital. Obviously, we don't know for my cohort, for people like myself, we don't know the majority of them are going to go into an arrest. So we can't really put us into a, a calling situation firsthand unless you, you're you there by chance. But do you think it would, I don't know if the technologies are there, but in first aid situations with paramedics and things like that, would they have calling apparatus with them would that be a practical scenario for them to adopt in the future if they know that you know as well as getting a defib and doing cpr that we get a calling pack whatever that looks like i don't know but is that something that you could see perhaps coming in the future well we can certainly we can't exclude it but there have been studies trying that approach because it's so obvious from from experimental studies that it would be a great advantage so there has been a big study looking at pre-hospital cooling with intravenous cold fluids uh, but that did not show any benefit there's some signal towards harm because cold fluids will give you a load on the heart. So there's a risk of cardiogenic shock. The patients will go into shock because of the fluids. 
So that was not a good approach. And then there was a, a study which was centered from Stockholm in Sweden with, with nasal cooling, where they tried to cool through the nose uh, of the patients uh, with a special uh, technique uh, with evap- evaporation. And that didn't show any effect. However, a small signal towards possible effect, it, at least it can't be excluded that it uh, may have some effect, but it was, was not a significant effect anyway. And I, it may tell us that it's the main, main thing if a person have a cardiac arrest is to get the heart restarted. And if we start doing other things, maybe we won't be as successful restarting the heart. That's true. That's true. So, so there are there are problems with any approach, and uh, if we compare a human to a mice or a rat, well, it's much more difficult to to cool a human. You can't just put a few ice packs; it it won't do much difference to uh, to lower the body temperature of such a big animal as a human. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of cooling uh, power. Okay, so can we go back to sort of the the turn of the century? It sounds a funny sort of phrase. So back back at the early 2000s, you said you noticed that it was obvious that cooling worked for you. So you you started doing that in your hospital then, presumably? Yeah, that's true. What did you start seeing? Well, uh, it was a great enthusiasm, and and the big thing I th- I think at that time was a shift in favor of the cardiac arrest patients. They became a very interesting patient group in the ICU because it suddenly the cardiac arrest went from being a, a condition where we could do nothing to become a condition where we could do a lot because we could do cooling with with the the cooling machines, fancy new apparatus. I think that was very good for the cardiac arrest patients. And and it was shown in in many registers that survival went up after the introduction of cooling. Uh, I think that's important to, to remember as well that Probably many things improved for the cardiac arrest patients because before that time, it wasn't obvious that a cardiac arrest patient would go to the ICU. Uh, They may even go to a regular ward without any artificial ventilation. And now, because they needed uh, to be sedated and artificially ventilated during the cooling process, they probably got very good intensive care uh, in the package, so to say. Also, we started with uh, uh, more advanced methods to diagnose brain injury, to to be able to do a more advanced prognostication to decide which patients would have a good outcome eventually and which patients uh, had such severe brain injury that it wouldn't be beneficial to continue treatment. And that was also probably very good for the patient. It made it the, the care more safe and the decisions around life-sustaining therapy more safe, I think. But were these patients in hospital cardiac arrest victims or were they out of hospital or were they both? Both, both. We didn't make any difference whether it was in hospital or out of hospital. For in-hospital cardiac arrest patients, they often have more significant comorbidities because they're in the hospital for a reason. 
And that may be a reason not to to give full intensive care, for example, for a patient with a, uh, advanced cancer of some kind. It may not be of benefit for the patient to, to have that care. But, but those decisions have to come later. When a patient have a cardiac arrest, it, it's uh, full action and, and full intensive care from the beginning. And then you can, can sometimes uh, have to back off. What was the scenario in Sweden at that time? Because the sort of general consensus from the UK is that the Scandinavian countries are ahead of us in the curve, as it were, regarding having AEDs in the community and encouraging people to do CPR and having the equipment and the processes in the hospital once you get there. Then, I wouldn't say. I think. I think it is at that the curve is lifting around that time around 2000 around 2000 or even even later so i think you could see the the real surge in in survival rates in sweden comes after the introduction of hypothermia but at the same period, there is a lot of training in CPR in the community and this uh, public movement of uh, lay people, uh, CPR, is around that time. Uh, and, and we have seen very clearly in the Swedish Cardiac Arrest Register how survival and the use of bystander CPR are parallel curves. So you've been doing um, therapeutic treatments for a while then, and then had that been spreading around to other hospitals and to other parts of the world? And then what, what was the motivation for coming up with the TTM trial, the initial one? Yeah, so so the the introduction or the implementation of therapeutic hypothermia was a global movement, and uh, a lot of believers who had uh, been doing experimental research, perhaps, or were just doing clinical research, uh, were implementing this uh, treatment all over the world uh, in a parallel process. So it wasn't something that spread from Lund to other places, certainly not, but it it uh, spread from many places. And there's still a very much of a movement and a great interest in, in hypothermia all over the world. But the TTM, so, so we were also part of, of the believers because we had so much evidence from the experimental research, as we, as we thought at least. And uh, then Niklas Nielsen, he did a meta-analysis of the clinical evidence for therapeutic hypothermia together with the clinical trials unit in Copenhagen. You know, Copenhagen is very close to, to Lund. It's just over the sound here, and we have uh, a lot of collaborations. And Niklas worked with very good statisticians and, and clinical trialists in Copenhagen. And they could show that the evidence for therapeutic hypothermia in humans were insufficient, uh, and that it could be a benefit or it could be no benefit or it could even be harm. We couldn't tell from the studies that were performed. And I think that changed something fundamentally for us in the group. And we decided to do a large international trial. And we started to form the group around the TTM, the first TTM trial. 
When we were discussing the TTM trial, we first thought that we would just redo the previous trials and just test whether cooling is better than no cooling. But since the the guidelines at that time, they recommended cooling for these patients, we many people thought it would be unethical to randomize patients to no cooling since, since uh, a lot of people all over the world thought that it was shown that cooling was working and the guidelines stated that it was shown or there was, was evidence, strong evidence in favor of hypothermia. So the, therefore, the first TTM trial was a bit of a compromise where we, we decided to just to compare two different targeted temperatures, 33 degrees and 36 degrees temperature, where 36 was quite similar to no treatment or as far as we could go uh, in that direction. And, and then we did this very large trial with 950 patients, so it's much more than the other trials together. And we saw absolutely no difference between 33 and 36 degrees. And I think that was very, very surprising for many people in the field. Uh, because from the experimental research, we should certainly have a very big difference between 33 and 36, but we didn't. And we looked at a lot of different uh, outcomes for the patients, uh, of course, survival, of course, neurological function at six months after the cardiac arrest. And we looked at cognitive function in detail. We looked at biomarkers of brain injury in the blood. And we saw no differences between the groups. So, so that led to a change in, in the recommendations uh, from the international organizations that 33 or 36 degrees is just, just as good. You still felt that cooling was better than no cooling? Well, <laughs> I felt that we needed to take it all the way. I, I didn't feel that, I, personally, I didn't feel very strongly uh, that cooling was better than no cooling. I, I felt that there may be an effect still, but I'm I'm not sure. And I'm still not sure because we are still doing the TTM2 trial. I think it's uh, I think it's equally possible that there is no effect of cooling as that there is is an effect. Ah, interesting. So, what what is it the people who say that cooling works? What is it they think is actually happening with the with the brain and with the body when you actually call someone? What what processes are we changing? Well, what we are certainly doing a lot of things uh, in the brain when we when we cool a patient. That's no doubt about it. Uh, I mean, we we slow down all the biological processes. It's just the same as when you take your milk package of milk and put it in the refrigerator. You protect the milk from from breakdown, and you protect the brain from from breakdown and damage. Uh, due to a lot of different uh, processes. That has been shown in the experimental animals, and, and we have proof of principles with, with this physician uh, who went into the cold water, as you as you referred to, and, and we have from patients being cooled for thoracic surgery. We know that it's very a very potent treatment, but we don't know if... When we do it in a delayed fashion, as we do with the patients today, if that is is effective, and that's my major doubt, I doubt that that we do it early enough. I think we would need to be much faster, and 
have some kind of method to very effectively, without any side effect, cool the patient on the scene. I, I doubt that it is effective to do it as we do it. So, so do you think that the damage is already done, as it were? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm afraid of, at least, that, that we, are not, uh, we are not protecting the brain early enough. And I guess that comes back to what we briefly talked about earlier, getting the paramedics equipment to be able to do that. But then, as you said, that adds another, another job to be done as well as trying to restart the heart, which is obviously the most important thing to do. So it, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it, really? Yeah. So this with, with the hypothermia treatment or targeted temperature meet treatment is something that we will be living with for many years to come, I'm sure. And we will have to work with it and try to refine it to get as much as possible out of the treatment. But I'm not sure that what we are doing today is effective. Uh, most hospitals these days, do most cardiac arrest patients, say in developed nations, will they experience the cooling that um, you've been talking about? Yes, I would say so. Certainly in the Scandinavian countries, but it varies over Europe and it varies globally as as well. Uh, I think it's a lot more variations in the in the US, but there's big variations within Europe as well. Well, you're currently undertaking uh, TTM two. So how how does that differ from your original trial? Yeah. So in the TTM two, we are taking the question one step further. We are now trying to evaluate whether hypothermia to 33 degrees, as in the TTM1 trial, compared to no cooling unless the patient gets fever. So we in, in the control group, we will only treat those patients who develop fever, which is a body temperature above 37.8. So if a patient gets 37.8, we will take them down to 37.5 and, and keep them there with a cooling device for the first 24 hours. Do, do people naturally go into a fever after they've had a cardiac arrest? Yes, many people uh, develop a fever after cardiac arrest, and that's part of, probably part of the global systemic organ damage with a global inflammatory process in the body. So it's common that you develop fever, and the more fever you develop, the worse is your prognosis. So it's related to a worse prognosis to have fever. So that's uh, the reason why there is a recommendation to treat fever. And it's the same in stroke, actually. There's a recommendation to, to treat fever because there is a, an association with a worse outcome. However, whether we are actually doing something good by cooling, we don't know because it may be that it's just a marker of a more severe damage. So, so we don't we don't even know that for sure. But we thought that in the TTM two trial we will take it just one step further and decide whether cooling for patients who do not develop fever whether that is any good or not. Yeah, it's interesting. And so, uh, how far along are you in this trial? The TTM two trial has uh, has included nineteen hundred patients, uh, just as planned. It's the largest uh, cardiac arrest trial ever performed, and we are now performing the follow up, the six months uh, follow up, and trying to complete it. It has been a a problem with the COVID pandemic, of course, because we can't see the patients face to face. We have to do 
follow-ups with the telephone instead. But uh, we are, are pressing on with our schedule, and we believe we will be able to publish the results in the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Okay, that's great. So what are the outcomes you're looking for? Is it, is it just not that they survive, uh, but they survive with particular um, or better neurological outcome, is it? Yes, certainly. We are looking at different things, but the primary outcome is survival. And that's because it's a very robust outcome of the cardiac arrest. You can't really, you can, you can never manipulate survival. Either you survive or not. And it, you can't get any, any kind of influence from your own perceptions uh, into that. But the secondary outcomes is quality of life of the survivors and also their neurological function in uh, more detail. And then we have a lot of exploratory uh, outcomes where we are looking at their cognitive function, their physical activity, and how they are, are uh, participating in, in uh, community, etc., etc. Okay. So you say you'll be publishing next year, and then do you, do you get a feel for whether this has been a, a benefit doing TTM2 as opposed to TTM1? Yes, I, I, I mean, it will have a fundamental impact if we can show that hypothermia is or cooling to 33 degrees is effective, then I think a lot more centers will start using this treatment all over the world. There will be a very, very strong signal for, for working to refine uh, hypothermia treatment as well. But if we don't show any effect, it will be to the other side. People will probably uh, stop uh, doing hypothermia for patients who don't have fever. That will also have a fundamental effect. So I think the world is rather much, or the the cardiac arrest community is rather much waiting for the results of the TTM2 trial. Yes, yes, I can understand that. (laughs) A a lot of weight on your shoulders. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. I'd just like to finish off this conversation about therapeutic management is um, sort of throw you a left field type question. Do you think we can use this sort of technology to put humans into a sort of pseudo hibernation so that maybe it can be used in other fields like space travel or preserving people so their lifespan is longer? No, I don't think so. No, no, I don't know. But to slow down your met- metabolism may be good for you. It may make you live longer. There are some, I mean, some some data that starving is uh, uh, a slow grade starving will make you live somewhat longer. Cooling down the body and then reawake a patient. Or a person, I don't know. It's it's sort of a scientific uh, future that I don't, I don't want to be part of, at least. I think we are so many people on, on the world anyhow, so we should leave space for those coming after us. <laughs> but that's more an ethical issue, I guess. Of course, um, I mean, hypothetically cooling down somebody and putting them in a spaceship and having some, some uh, machine to thaw them when they arrive it's uh, yeah theoretically you may be right maybe maybe possible yeah for long travels extending over 100 years or something like that yeah or maybe even i don't know over shorter periods uh, like 
getting to Mars or coming back from there can be a couple of years, I believe, if, if you leave it at the wrong time in the orbit. Yeah, uh, I think you could. Uh, I mean, pr- probably you could extrapolate from from the from your package of milk again. That that uh, putting the milk in a refrigerator will buy you some time, but not a lot of time, a few days before it gets sour. But putting it in the freezer will buy you a lot more time. I mean, it's still a limited time. And putting a human in a freezer, I don't think he will. We will be able to thaw them afterwards because there are so much cell damage it, it, it's not all good news and being in the freezer <laughs> no i don't think so <laughs> okay tobias thank you very much it's been a really interesting um conversation about this subject which is you know it's it's played a part in my recovery and i'm sure it played a part in many other people's recovery as well and i'm really glad that you guys are looking at this subject and that you did back in uh back at the end of the 90s last century and uh it's going to be really interesting to see the results of the ttm2 and where that takes us so good luck with it all i hope we'll speak again soon Thank you, Paul. I just want to say a last word, and that is that even if we would show that therapeutic hypothermia is ineffective in the way we use it today, it wouldn't mean that the treatment has not been beneficial for the patients. I think it has been tremendously beneficial because a lot of things came with the package, a lot more focus on the cardiac arrest patient in the ICU. A lot more more uh, artificial ventilation, a focus on that, sedation regimes, uh, EEG uh, surveillance, etc. We will talk more about that. Yes, it's, it's, it's very valid points. And yeah, thanks for raising them. Thank All you. Right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. And I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org and you can find us by googling Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.